answers to all of your early retirement FAQs with a rebel spy. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Joshua Sheets. Today is Thursday, October the 9th, 2014. And today we are going to start working through the list of all of your frequently asked questions about early retirement with one of the magnificent moderators from the Money Mustache Forums, a rebel spy, a.k.a. Joe. You know, I really love one of the my favorite trends going on on the internet right now is just the massive growth of the early retirement community. And I love the community because it's one of the most positive, upbeat, energetic communities. And after spending a lot of time in the traditional financial planning world where oftentimes <laughs> I'd see it, I've found many clients and, and people trying to figure out, well, how do I just scrape through? It's really exciting to spend time in the early retirement community where people are just focused on how can I achieve this massive level of success as quickly as possible. And after spending hours trying to encourage people to save 10 or 15% of their income, it's wonderful to be to watch people just wake up and say, I'm going to save 50% of my income, or I'm going to save 80% of my income. And so I love this community. And although this show is not the early retirement show, uh, there are others who are doing a much better job about with that uh, than I am. The, I do think a lot about this, and I, I am very interested in these topics, and I love being part of the community. And probably there are a number of active forums online that are engaged around this community. One of them is, I think it's the Early Retirement Forums. I haven't spent much time on there, but I know a lot of people have benefited from there. Then there's also the Early Retirement Extreme Forums. But the most active forums that I'm aware of uh, at the moment is the Money Mustache Forums. And there is an awesome community of people that get together there and talk about uh, early retirement topics uh, in depth and all kinds of all kinds of things from a from a mustachian perspective, as it's known affectionately by the uh, by the fans of of Pete's blog over at MrMoneyMustache.com. And so I've enjoyed lurking over there for quite a while, and I've contributed to some of the conversations. I really have enjoyed it, but it's always stood out to me. To, I've always been impressed with the wonderful job that the moderators do over there, and I've also always been impressed with how frequently the same question gets asked again and again and again and again. <laughs> so I've always been, uh, I've always uh, thought that there was one moderator, and there are several great moderators over there, and, and um, I may talk with more of them in the future, but there is one moderator, and the, the screen name is a rebel spy. Uh, I thought for years it was Arabelsby, but uh, it's actually a rebel spy. And his name is Joe. And so I reached out to Joe, and because I've always been impressed with how Joe has answered questions on the forum, doing a good job of not being dogmatic about this is the right answer, but rather showing the different sides of the article. So I reached out to him and I said, I'd like to put together a resource, an audio resource for the early retirement community that could help people get an introduction to some of the major questions that they're going to have to think about. And I'd like to do it in a, in a balanced way to try to give information so they can figure out what's right for them. 
And so after a little bit of arm, arm twisting, Joe agreed to come on the show. And we've compiled a very extensive list of, well, not extensive, but eight or 10 questions that we would just see asked again and again and again and again and again. And the plan for today's show is to go through that list. Now, this is actually a pre-recorded interview. I'm just about to play it. And what we... <laughs> We didn't even make it through the first one. So we're going to come back and we're going to do more in the future. But uh, but I think you're going to find the content of today's show uh, very valuable. And we spend most of our time talking about real estate versus stocks as a, as a strategy for uh, for early early retirement. And I'm thrilled with who I got to come on. I'm thrilled with Joe uh, for, and with his contributions. I mean, to give you some idea, I just, pull, idea, I just pulled up his profile on Money Mustache Forums, he has contributed 11,030 posts to the Mr. Money Mustache Forum, which is an average of 11.4 per day. So I can tell you how active he is in that forum. And that's uh, 11,000 posts since February 14, 2012. Uh, and this is 2000, October 2014. So I think that's a great introduction. Joe, thank you for all the work that you do. And I hope you enjoy the interview. So, Joe, thank you for making the time to uh, to be with me tonight. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So, I, I don't know whether to call you Joe or to call you Arabelspi or a rebel spy. You know, frankly, for the first year I would see you posting on the mustache forums, I thought it was uh, Arabelspi. And then one day I looked at it and I said, that, that word is a rebel spy. So, you must get that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I, I first created this screen name almost 20 years ago using, using AOL back in in the mid '90s, and uh, there's people who who I've met in person who, until I introduced myself as I'm a rebel spy, and they went, "What? Oh!" <laughs> and uh, so many many people have had that told me about that light bulb moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So our mission here today is to create an audio version of just kind of an, a primer, so to speak, of the frequently asked questions that a or that many people who are first interested in the topics of early retirement um, would ask. But before we get to that, though, I would love, because I've only just interacted with you on the forums and, and, and read your posts, I'm interested in how did you get involved with the Money Mustache community? Um. Well, I um, have been been into the early retirement scene for um, years. First, finding um, Jacob over at ERE back in the in the late two thousands, mm-hmm. and so when Pete first started his blog, um, I found it within within a month of it opening. I think he opened it in April uh, twenty eleven, and I found it in May, wow. and and immediately was hooked because. The guy's just got the most entertaining writing style you can imagine, um, and and a lot of his his stuff just resonated with me because I'm not quite as extreme as Jacob and a lot of those people. I I have a lot of respect for for those people who really can get their spending down and really improve their skills. And it's it's something I I'm not quite there, but um, but Pete's kind of more middle of the road. It seems extreme to a lot of consumers, but not not to someone who's who's quite at Jacob's level. Really, kind of struck a chord with me and my wife. And so, um, then when he when he uh, started the forums uh, about a year later, I immediately hopped on. I've always been a big fan of forums and have tens of thousands of posts across a bunch of different ones across the internet. And so, um, got involved there and, and have just really enjoyed it. The 
the Mustachian people in general, I found, are just an incredibly smart and, and great group of people to interact with. I'll concur with your assessment of kind of Pete's ability to spread the, the spread the good news, so to speak. You know, there are certainly some the the topic of how to build financial independence. I mean, that's been solved for decades. Uh, you know, you can go back to Joe and Vicky Dominguez, uh, or excuse me, Joe Dominguez and Vicky Robbins, uh, with uh, your money or your life. You can go back to, uh, you can, I mean, you can go back as far back as, <laughs> as probably writing is around. But in the modern era, it certainly seems that Jacob was the one who really kind of cracked the code and talked about it in a in this nor, more modern internet context. And then, as far as being able to make it more accessible. Uh, Pete's done a wonderful job, so I think we all all owe him a debt of gratitude for that. Uh, and, it, and it's also true about what you remark about us being extreme, because, I mean, Jacob is a little bit intimidating for a lot of people. The idea of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, tell, you go home and tell your spouse and say, I found this guy on the internet that says I can live on 7000 bucks a year. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But if you go home and tell your spouse that says, I found this guy on the internet, that his family of three spends twenty five grand plus the cost of real estate. So that's, let's call it forty grand a year. Well, that's just a median income. And so if we could just live on a medium, median income, then we can achieve financial independence. And he makes it sound easy. Uh, so he's done a great service to the to the message, so to speak. Absolutely. Were you so you were already following an early retirement plan? Like, and where are you in your process? Um, so I had kind of had it, yeah, in the back of my mind, in that I was real familiar with the concepts. Had had been introduced to the safe withdrawal rate. Had had understood a lot of the early retirement stuff, but wasn't really focused on it per se. Uh, my wife and I are both teachers and, and we both love our jobs. And, um, and so we were, uh, saving and saving quite a bit, but also making a lot of mistakes, uh, both in investing, well, mainly just in investing. Um, Mm -hmm. and that was, that was all me. And, um, and my wife's very supportive and, and I learned some painful lessons in the, in the, 2008 recession and um mm-hmm. and am now a big index fund fan because i <laughs> i'm certainly not capable of timing the market even if others might be sure. um and but but around that time um we got into real estate we we live in las vegas and uh real estate crashed pretty hard here and and so we made some mistakes there too trying to uh catch a falling knife with with investing and and buying some homes that still had a long way to fall. We, I thought, Hey, you know, they've, they've fallen for a year. They've fallen for a year and a half. These must be good investments now. And there was still some more painful times to come, but, um, but we kind of kept at it and almost sort of dollar cost averaged into, into homes and ended up with a fair number of rentals here in Las Vegas. And, and, um, and after that, I, I really got into real estate as, as a hobby and enjoyed reading about it and learning about it and going to real So then started partnering with people on rehabs and investing in notes and, and buying some rentals out of state once Las Vegas prices got to where it didn't really make sense to buy here anymore around um, early 2013 or so. And so um, all that to say, we're, we're looking at it having our first child and, and retiring in maybe another two years or so, it'll be right about the time that I'm 30 wow. and my wife will just, just be about to turn 30. 
Wow. Um, yeah, so it's 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 been a pretty interesting wild ride, um, but it, it, most of it, um, most of it has just come through the last four years of of finally educating myself before making investment decisions mm-hmm. and and making smart choices uh, that are based on knowledge rather than uh, speculation. So it's. I'm definitely glad that I, I decided maybe I should learn what I'm doing rather than just hope, hope and pray. So <laughs> that's fantastic, though. And you've been able to do that all on a teacher's salary. Well, two teacher salaries, I guess. That's what a great story, man. Thank you. Congratulations. Uh, and then so Thank you. after you after you retire or declare yourself financially independent, are you are you going to continue teaching at all or just focus full time on managing your properties? Do you have any, any idea what, what your lifestyle is going to look like at that time? Yeah. Um, my wife and I, we both really love to travel and, um, we, we did a backpacking through Europe trip one summer for, for a couple months and, um, we've traveled, traveled to a number of different places. And so our plan, um, though it, it kind of fluctuates roughly looks like have a kid and start to travel full time. Um, probably a slow travel around the world. If you're f- familiar with uh, go curry cracker and I'm no York cause you've interviewed them, but <laughs> if your listeners are familiar with, with go curry cracker kind of, um, moving, moving to a place and living there for a few months, getting to know the neighborhood, a local market. And then, um, that getting to know the people and actually living there, not just visiting there as a tourist. And, mm-hmm. and, um, so we're looking at doing something like that. One of our, I don't know about teaching, um, one of our kind of plan C or D is to teach English overseas if we if we find out that we need some more money or there's some kind of shortfall or whatever then uh, then that's always a backup plan and and you know if we find that we miss it um, we can always go back but just having that that freedom to to do whatever we want is really what we're looking for. That's exciting. Now let's start there because I think it, you, you raise a really interesting. Um, scenario. And so we're going to tackle first. It sounds like you've had some exposure to investing through mutual funds, specifically through an indexing strategy and also through real estate. So one of the common questions that I see in the, the well, the Money Mustache Forum is the only real early retirement forum I've ever been much involved in. Uh, so we'll just pick on that. Um, I often see the question about uh, real estate versus, you know, stocks, basically, real estate versus index funds. Very few people on there are pursuing strategies other than, other than indexing. But uh, you are planning to travel, but yet you're going to own a bunch of real estate. Do you see those, ab- that you see yourself able to continue owning the real estate and managing it from abroad, or are you planning to sell out and move to another strategy? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't think that, we're, we're not planning on selling anytime soon unless uh, for whatever reason, the market dictates that and, and there's better opportunity because, um, real estate offers us a couple advantages that, um, stocks won't that, that I'm, I'm sure we'll get to in just a minute. But, um, so there's a number of different options for handling real estate management when you're not local. Um, one of them is of course a property manager and, um, and they'll typically manage your properties, find tenants for you, things like that, and charge you about 10% of the gross rent. Um, the, the tricky part is finding a good one. 
because mm-hmm. you're, you are relying on them to take care of your assets. You're relying on them to find good tenants who will pay, um, pay on time and, and make sure they don't do a bunch of damage to the house. And so you, you do need to find a good property manager, which can be tricky, uh, especially if you're investing in areas where there's not a whole lot of choice, more rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, another option besides, uh, besides a property manager is managing it remotely yourself. This obviously is tricky because you know, you, if you're half a continent away, completely different time zone, you can't go deal with things. Um, one of the better ways I like to deal with this scenario is uh, to buy a home warranty. And a home warranty, um, if you don't know, is uh, you pay, it's generally around three, $400 a year um, mm-hmm. for just an average single family home. And that covers a number of repair issues. The, the tenants can call the home warranty company directly. Typically, when you buy a single family home, you'll get the seller will pay for a year of coverage of a home warranty. So, so a lot of people might be familiar with it that way because mm-hmm. um, the seller doesn't want to have a hot water heater break, you know, a month after the person moves in. And, and um, so if you have a home warranty, the tenants can call and usually there's, there's a small um, trade fee for, for just the visit. It's like 60 bucks. And then the home warranty company will, will cover the cost of the repairs. They'll send out, a local um, plumber or electrician or whatever's needed and, and fix everything. So that's, that's a really good solution. If you're self-managing to, um, to kind of deal with the maintenance issues um, because if something happens, if a pipe bursts or, or whatever, um, the tenants can call them directly. The home warranty company will send someone out. The tenants will pay them 60 bucks and you've kind of capped your repair costs at that $400, $400 a year that you're paying to the home warranty company. Mm-hmm. And that'll cover, you know, all those different issues. And then you don't even have to get involved. The hardest part about this strategy is the turnover. When you have a tenant move out, you need to get the place cleaned up, maybe paint, carpet, um, any, any repairs, anything like that. And then you need to show it to new tenants. Um, mm-hmm. and if, if you're not there, it's kind of hard to show it to tenants. So, um, there, there are companies in, in different cities that will just find tenants for you um, and, and realtors even that will do this. Um, so it is kind of a more hodgepodge strategy of finding a company that will do that and getting the home warranty and, and trying to piece together these different parts of your team to, to help you manage the property. Um, I think that strategy works best if you have really long-term tenants, ones that are going to be staying for multiple years and, and you're, you're off traveling, they have the home warranty company and you don't have to worry about turnover and, and it, it kind of just takes care of itself and, and the checks show up, uh, you know, <laughs> cross your fingers on that. So, right. um, yeah, it, it, the, traveling and owning property does add, add some complexities. Yeah. Right. Well, I liked how you let off with watching for a, uh, a market correction in, you know, if real estate is undervalued, there's no reason to sell it. And so you'll figure out a, a lifestyle strategy that may, can make that work. And it's very, I think possible, uh, up to you, but you know, perhaps traveling with a, with a two month old is not what you want to do. Uh, and it may be different after a couple of years. And so you can kind of figure it out and you can adjust, you can adjust as time goes forward. So in solving this question of real estate, and let's keep it simple, uh, just because 
uh, let's keep it of real estate versus index funds. And in order, let's let's use that as our two options and ignore ignore investing in in uh, ignore other individual stock strategies or other other equity strategies. We'll ignore options. We'll ignore all of that. What do you see as far as the usual, the conversation, the pros and cons between those approaches for early retirees? Good question. Um, so the the main thing that everyone sort of gravitates towards to begin with is uh, the amount of work. Because obviously an index fund, you, you, you buy and you're done. Or, you know, mm-hmm. you set up your, your auto withdrawals from your bank account and and you're good. It, it doesn't require any more than a click of a button in a few minutes and, you know, maybe once a year going on and rebalancing. Mm-hmm. Um, real estate obviously takes a lot more work. Um, it, it, uh, you do have those phone calls from tenants to, to deal with issues or te- text. In my case, I, I have all my tenants text me. I don't, um, I don't want to deal with phone calls. And, um, so you do have, have those sort of issues. Um, so that, that's the first big major difference. Um, real estate does take more work. I manage, I have a, uh, I have a property manager for my out of state properties right now and I manage my local ones and they take about a month or sorry, an hour of work a month, mm-hmm. uh, per property. And that's averaged over a year, but it usually doesn't bunch up like that. Most months it takes, no time at all. It's five minutes to check my bank account and see that the rent was deposited and, mm-hmm. and go on. And every couple months, maybe there's a text that, um, there's an issue. And so I see, oh, there's this plumbing issue. And I call up a local plumber and give them the tenant's number. And it takes me a total of 15 minutes that month to deal with that property. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's bunched up to where then when a tenant moves out, I, I maybe have, 10 hours of dealing with that property in terms of getting it fixed up, cleaned up, showing it to people and getting it re-rented. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it'll be, uh, you know, about once a year, or maybe every 18 months on average that I'll, I'll have a big chunk of time over a weekend or two dealing with that property. And then most months it's, it's no work at all. And, and then of course my out of state ones, um, are maybe, um, 10 minutes each month kind of reconciling the, the statements from the property manager. So it does take more time. Um, I think the most time and work it takes is upfront, finding a good property, finding a good deal. Um, and that takes a lot of patience and knowledge and can be aggravating and you put in offers and they don't get accepted. And, um, and so I, I certainly see why a lot of people don't want to deal with that frustration. Um, and why index funds have a very uh, ease of use appeal. So that's, that's kind of the downside to real estate. Um, there's, that's sort of the, the pro of index funds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course their great historic record in terms of, of returns. Um, you, it's, it's hard to go wrong with, with just a, a solid total market index fund with low costs and um, and just kind of set it and forget it and maybe rebalance depending on your asset allocation. Um, right. The pros of real estate um, are it's a much more inefficient market. Um, I'm I don't believe in the strong EMH, but I do believe the stock market is 
mostly efficient over a long enough time period. Especially for large cap stocks. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And so even though we do occasionally see just wild inefficiencies like uh, March 2009, um, they generally get corrected pretty quickly. They're fairly rare. And in general, stuff's kind of priced where it's supposed to be. So you're just kind of buying at the market rate and mm-hmm. whatever that is and just kind of holding. There's not, there's not a, a lot you can really exploit. Right. Um, at, at least I don't have the knowledge to, to, to do so. And I think most, most investors probably don't. Um, it's the rare, kind of the rare exception who might be able to. So, but with real estate, it's, it's a much more inefficient market. There's, um, kind of due to a lack of liquidity, um, it it takes a while for a property to sell. Um, it has to go through the whole title process and there's inspections and, um, all that sort of stuff that happens when you purchase a piece of property. Um, and there's also a lot less information. So, um, whereas companies may publish, uh, their earnings report, you don't have a property publishing, um, information about itself. There's, there's some very limited stuff in the public records, uh, which can often be wrong. Um, and there's, you know, some sort of limited information if it, if it gets put up for for sale in a, in a formal way on an, on the MLS. Mm -hmm. And, um, due to that sort of limited information and, and, kind of transaction time that it takes, you can, you can find good deals. You can find things that are priced below market. You can find more of those, um, whole markets that are, that are almost inefficient because, you know, in, in March, 2009 with stocks stuff corrected pretty quickly within a few months. Whereas, um, because of those lightning fast transactions that can occur, with the click of a button, whereas it does take months and months with real estate. So the markets move rather slowly. So when they're kind of inefficiently priced and you can find deals where the rents are, are returning you a, a really good return relative to the price, then you can kind of jump on that and, and get something that over the next 30 or 40 years is going to look really good um, right. in terms of your return. So that's that's one benefit is is due to the due to the inefficient market of real estate you can you can search for deals and and if you're patient you can find good deals. Um, another benefit uh, and this is um, kind of maybe jumping the gun on on where I, where I think you might go a little later with with safe withdrawal rates, but um, typically with stocks you don't you want to have around a 4% safe withdrawal rate. And, and some people like to be more conservative. Some people might be a little more aggressive, but <clears throat> excuse me. Um, most people, most people want around 4% withdrawal rate. So they say, okay, um, 4% or, or 125 of my total portfolio, I can withdraw each year and, and adjust that to inflation. And, and that's, then I'm good. Mm-hmm. And sort of, and uh, not to go too deep into the Trinity study or anything like that, but just to give a quick recap of why that is, is, is due to volatility, uh, sequence of returns risk. Mm-hmm. If, um, if the stock market takes a dive right after you retire and you withdraw your money to live on for that year, um, you're withdrawing it at that lower, lower valuation, and then it's harder for your money to make its way back up 
from the returns. So, um, so a higher withdrawal rate would be just fine typically on average, but just because if it might dive, you, you kind of say, okay, well, 4% is going to be safe in case that happens. It was kind of the, what they called the safe max, the, or safe min, the, mm-hmm. the very kind of minimum withdrawal rate you could take and, and not have to worry about that sequence of withdrawal risk. Well, real estate um, kind of doesn't suffer from that problem. Um, with real estate, uh, let's say you are earning um, 8%, um, 8% uh, real or nominal. It, do, it doesn't matter for the purposes of this illustration. Mm-hmm. But you're, you're earning 8% on this, and, um, and you expect your stocks to also earn 8%, but you can only withdraw 4% of the stocks because you're worried about the stock market taking a dive. Well, with, with real estate, with your rents coming in, they're a lot more stable return. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people kind of invest in dividend stocks a lot of time. A lot of people wanting to retire early like dividend stocks for those for that cash flow coming in. Right. Well, with real estate, um, your rents typically aren't going to dive the way um, the way the stock market might. And so you might be okay if you're getting an 8% return you might be okay withdrawing 6% of of your total portfolio and and it's not even a, a withdrawal rate cuz you're not withdrawing anything you're just spending those rents as they come in <coughs> um and so if but if you took if you took that amount of rents that you were spending and divided that amount by um, by your total portfolio value, you might find that it's six percent. Um, but that's okay because you're not worried so much about running out of money, and you, it, because you're not withdrawing from anything. It, theoretically, your rents should increase with inflation as as your tenants make more money. Even though you're retired and not earning anymore, your tenants' wages rise, and so you increase the rent, and and now you're getting more money. Um, but I feel like I'm not saying this very clearly. So let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2009 or so, when, when Las Vegas just took a, a dive in real estate, the values dropped about 60% from their peak. Um, and if, if that was a stock and you were relying on withdrawing some, um, you'd, you'd have that sequence of returns risk and it'd be really hard to make your money back. But while the valuations dove 60%, Rents in Las Vegas dropped about five percent. Wow, the, interesting. The median, yeah, the median rent went from about a thousand a month to nine fifty a month, and then um, kind of since then has climbed back up. Um, and so, if you had retired in two thousand seven on Las Vegas real estate, um, a lot of people lost a lot of money in the real estate crash because they were over leveraged and they were had a negative cash flow and and so then they couldn't afford their mortgage payments but if you were had a positive cash flow mm-hmm. and you retired on those rents your properties may have dove in value but as long as you still had that cash flow your rents barely dropped and you kind of just went along your business right and and so um Real estate, so real estate has that kind of advantage over index funds of not having that sequence of returns risk. Rents generally are are very stable, um, unless 
I mean, you may want to have some diversity in your portfolio. I invest in a number of areas to spread out a geographic risk. If you were, you know, investing in New Orleans in 2004 and Hurricane Katrina hit, you're going to suffer some losses of rents, of course. Um, But in general, rents just, they don't dive the way a stock market might. And so while you'd probably be fine with drawing 6% from an index portfolio, you might not. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of people want to go for four. Well, obviously, if you're doing a 6% withdrawal rate instead of 4%, then you can save a lot less money. You know, it, it, you can get to early retirement a lot quicker because you don't need to save as much. You only need to, um, to save, uh, what is that? Uh, uh, I don't know. The, I don't know the percentage. I know. I know the hundred to sixteen times your assets instead of, or seventeen times your assets instead of twenty-five times, or times your annual spending, not assets. You need to save seventeen times your annual spending instead of twenty-five times your annual spending. So you can obviously get to that point a lot quicker. Right. Um, I want to add something here because you're making yeah. an excellent point, and one of the things that I think we don't, uh, well, one of the things that I don't see discussed very much that I'd like to see discussed more is really the impact on uh, the impact of the rate of return that you can earn on your investments. Now what frustrates me about is just a personal hang up. One of the things that frustrates me about uh, the indexing and this basically in the indexing argument is what often happens is people often say, well, uh, let's assume that we have either a, you know, a weak or a semi-strong form of the efficient market hypothesis like you talked about. Well, then that means that I'm just going to not worry about getting the highest return. I'm just going to plow my money in and I'm going to go with it. Fine. That's totally fine. And there's nothing wrong with it. But as you point out, if you could achieve and plan on a higher distribution rate from your investments, that can make a substantial difference in the amount of time that you can reach toward your goals. So there really is, and this is why we have an this is why we have an efficient market in the first place, is because there are a lot of people trying to maximize their return, and all of those people maximizing the return keeps the markets keeps the markets efficient. But in real estate, like you pointed out, there is a, there might be a fairly inefficient market in your area. Now you may find it's very efficient. You may find that the rents just simply don't work out. You may be in some funky place. For example, I have no idea what it's like to be a real estate investor in Manhattan. I wouldn't even have a clue how to do that. Uh, but I can, I, I can figure out how to buy and sell single-family houses in a moderate-sized city. That's, that's, well, that's a well-established uh, market. So if you can reach, get a, higher, a slightly higher rate of return on your investments, it may make a dramatic difference in your ability to achieve your financial goals faster. And uh, I'm sure you're about to touch on the topic of leverage, and I want to tell you a story on our way to the, on our way to talking about leverage. But uh, the point you make uh, about just simply spending rents and rents adjusting over time with inflation is a very useful behavioral finance topic, because the problem that many the, the reason why we have the issue with the four percent rule is because we are spending capital gains. And we're spending rents. And this is actually one of my beefs with how the current uh, – I wish the – I wish the stock – the way the stock market functions now with large publicly traded companies where many of them are, are emphasizing 
capital gains and and growing their appreciation growing their their just through through the stupid tax code that we have where dividends are the worst thing that they can do is is, is pay out dividends and everything that comes th- and let me pause just a moment and explain that real quick just for the audience in case they're not familiar with the concept so if you own a company and let's just say you own a small you own a small public tr- you own you own a company you own a a uh, a real estate <laughs> you own a painting company. Now, at the end of the, and this is a traditional corporation, uh, then at the end of the year, if you have profits in the company, you need to pay those profits out in the form of a dividend. But the problem is, is that those profits are double taxed. So you're going to pay tax on the dividends at the corporate level, which can be basically about 35%. And then the person re- that receives those dividends is going to be taxed on those dividends uh, on their individual tax return as well. So they may, depending on what their actual, depending on what the corporate uh, tax rate is and depending on what their individual tax rate is, depending on what the national tax rate is, depending on the, you know, the local or the state tax rates, there can be a very, very high amount of taxation. And, and the reason is because there's, it, they're taxed twice at the corporate level and at the individual level. Well, due to this very silly design of the tax code, this has forced a lot of of companies to move their uh, well, it's not forced them, but it, because it's in the best interest of, their, of interest of their investors, they're focusing on the appreciation and the value of the stock, or they'll look for some other way to spend the money. So, for example, they'll do a stock buyback, and they'll buy back a portion of their stock for the for the treasury stock for the company, and that will increase the share value. But they're able to do that in a more tax efficient way. So when you're doing all these calculations on the 4% rule, that 4% rule assumes selling off and, and harvesting capital gains versus dividends. But fundamentally, we get more intuitively the, top, the, top, the idea of spending dividends. So you have your business, and then you only spend the profits, and you don't ever actually sell the business. Now, you could structure it. And the problem with indexing and using this approach is with indexing, you generally have a mix of companies in there. You have uh, Apple, which is not a big fan of paying dividends, and you have an old traditional uh, blue chip company that is an excellent dividend-paying company. And so you have all those things mixed together. So you have to look at your total return of the dividends versus the uh, versus the, the, the capital gains. Uh, but with real estate, most of the times people are just focusing on rents, and it's much easier to budget for maintaining consistent rents than it is to budget for rents and the value of the of the of the house. So I feel like I also was a little long-winded, Joe, but but I think it's important because there's a lot of behavioral aspects there. And you could create, uh, like you said, you could create a dividend portfolio of companies that are just paying dividend stocks and you could just choose to only spend your dividends. You could, you know, you could go buy a, a master limited partnership in, in a in an oil firm or something like that or buy a buy an yeah, buy an energy MLP and spend the spend the money on that. There's all kinds of things that you could do. Uh, but this is a fundamental concept that you have to look at, and it is a pretty cool – it is a much more powerful place to be if you can only spend the profits of your company. You never have to sell the company. Then you can you can enjoy your lifestyle, uh, but you also have a major asset that you can pass along to heirs. Uh, now, you have to have a little bit more money usually, so you're going to – if you can sell the, the profit-generating asset underneath and spend the profit, you, you need to save less money. So it's all a matter of trade-offs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, well, one only one minor correction in there. You you said that that people 
focus on on real estate will will just look at the rents and and retire on that and and I hope they do. I I see too many people that are trying to look at the appreciation and and are counting on some certain number. They have this projection of Good what point. the properties will be worth in their spreadsheets and um that that can be dangerous. Um but yeah, it, I do it's, think good point. Uh, that excellent point, well taken. I do think that it is probably more accessible for an average person to be able to make a decent prediction. As long as they're not new to real estate, they don't have stars in their eyes. I think it's probably more possible to make a decent prediction about the future of a local neighborhood than it is for the average person to be able to make a decent prediction about the the short-term trend of of the stock market. Uh, mm-hmm. Because you can, I think you can pick up, especially if you've been doing it or paying attention for a while. You can kind of pick up: is this city on? De- is a city in decline or is it growing? Is this neighborhood in decline or is it growing? You can look at some of the macroeconomic factors. You can look at, uh, you know, you can look at some of those things. Now, you can still be blindsided incredibly by some change. You know, for example. Uh, I don't fully understand all of the details, but I have read a number of real estate investors that I admire that got completely blindsided back in the 80s with some of the changes in the laws. And so you can be blindsided by a factor, by an outside influence. But I think it's just more, you can drive around and see, is this a, how, is this a stable neighborhood that's growing and that people are moving into and young families are buying and the prices are going up and there's businesses coming here because we're working in a, tax, in a, in a state that has a friendly tax environment? Or is this in decline and, and people are fleeing? And you could probably do that with a little higher degree of certainty than big cap stocks. Yeah, most likely. Um, Touch on leverage. Leverage. Okay. Um, That's, I would say, kind of a a very personal decision. Um, A a lot of people are kind of in the Dave Ramsey school of thought of of all debt is bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people are kind of uh, on the opposite extreme of, of saying, Man, while I'm young and working and can can afford to take risks, I want to go ahead and and try and scale up as quickly as possible. And then and then, of course, you have everyone in between. And um, there's so there's a number of benefits to real estate leverage that's not seen again if if we're comparing them kind of to index funds. Mm-hmm. In that if you're if you're using margin to to try and increase your returns, there's obviously that risk of a, a capital call and a, a risk that um, if the price drops, you may you may lose your investment. Whereas with real estate, if you're using leverage, a mortgage, um, as long as you're cash flow positive and you're paying your mortgage every month, the bank can't call that note due. You're not in, in violation of the terms of your mortgage. And mm-hmm. so... Um, it doesn't matter how underwater you are. If you're paying that, you you can keep your asset, and 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 so that that goes back to why it's so important to be cash flow positive, especially if you're using leverage. Um, is you don't want to get into a situation where you're where you can can kind of lose what you have. Um, so it, it's you need to be prudent with it. I would say. That being said, I'm personally a, a big fan of of using leverage for real estate with the 
interest rates we have today, and, and it, it, right now it's it's early October 2014, and, and our rates are um, <laughs> quite low uh, historically compared to pretty much any other time. And the fact that you can get a 30-year fixed mortgage for um, under 4% on a primary residence and maybe 5% on an investment property um, is just incredible compared to, you know, back in the early 80s when it was 18%. Right. And, and the fact that your, your mortgage rate can be so low, you know, there's people who, who post who have a 3.25% or 3.5, mortgage rate that it's essentially at the cost of inflation and, and, and sometimes even below. Right. Um, which is just to me, free money. When, when you can invest the government's money into a good, solid performing asset and you can put down, um, you know, whatever, whatever percent you put down, there's, there's lots of no money down strategies in real estate, um, that, that we won't get into, but whatever you're comfortable with putting down, um, I typically put down about 25% and, um, and then the other 75% is the bank's money that they're going to loan me at a very low interest rate for the next 30 years. And I'm, and, and this will go to show again that I, I can't predict anything and I'm not good at timing anything. Cause I, I thought for years, our interest rates have to go up and they're still low. Um, but I've thought since 2010, 2011, we're, we're going to start seeing interest rates. Like, but, but I still figure at some point, I don't think we're going to be in a Japan scenario where our interest rates stay low for 20 years. I do believe that at some point um, in, in the future, I don't know how far into the future, but at some point our interest rates are going to go up. And when you have that fixed, you know, sub 4% mortgage and interest rates at the time are double that 8%, which, which is typical historically is, is that's not a high interest rate. It, um, depending on the age of our listeners, they're either saying like, yeah, no, that's still pretty good. Or they're saying like, whoa, that sounds really high. Um, but, but 8% is a fairly typical number. And, and when your interest rate is half that and you're, you're literally saving hundreds and, and thousands of dollars every year on interest, um, that's just an incredible asset to have. That that mortgage is an asset, not just the house itself. Right. Um, but again, it goes back to how much are you comfortable with, and then also how good is the asset that you're buying. Right. Because if you're buying mediocre properties on leverage, you're you're going to get mediocre results, and and your your leverage should be a tool to help um, to help you're investing when you, when it makes sense to do so. And, um, I see a lot of people who are just like, yay, mortgages, mortgages are great. I can buy, I can buy four properties instead of one, but they're not, they're not good properties. They're not, they're not properties I'd want to own. And so, um, it, it still all comes down to, um, correct evaluation and, and knowledge of your investment. I think as with most financial conversations, there's a lot of nuance. 
And what happens is that many times you might read a uh, a thousand word blog post, and the writer is trying to make it sound as though, or you might listen to a six minute blurb on on the radio, and the speaker is trying to make it sound like either your choice is to be completely leveraged to the hilt, and you're one empty you're one empty you know apartment unit away from bankruptcy, or your choice is to pay cash a hundred percent along the way. Like that's simply that's simply not those two options, and uh, math. Now I want to be uh, first. My disclaimer: I've never purchased investment real estate. Uh, I've been interested in it. I've studied a lot, but I've never purchased it. And the reason I haven't is because simply because I haven't wanted to do the work of uh, managing it. But so that there is that disclaimer. But I think these these this theme, and, and since you are actively involved in this world, and I'll bring many more real estate investors on the show in the future, you let me know if I'm right. But um, I would simply say that the simplest way to get rich is borrow a million bucks and let your tenants pay it off. This is probably the simplest way to become a millionaire. And that's the fundamental attraction of real estate, is that it's it's there's a very liquid lending market, you can, if you have some money and you can get into a safe uh, rate, you can get, like you said, you can get 25% down on a property with cash out of your pocket. There's skin in the game and it's a win-win for the lender and it's a win for the borrower. And the tenant is the one who ultimately can pay the mortgage off. But there has to be a margin of safety there. Uh, If you run the rates of return on paid for real estate versus uh, leveraged real estate with a degree of safety, the rates of return are astronomically different, and that makes a real difference. And I, so I'm a, I was a recovering, uh, uh, I was a recovering, I am a recovering Ramseyaholic, and I used to run spreadsheets on this stuff. And I was like, I wonder if I could figure out a way to make Dave's strategy work of of buying uh, paid paid off real estate. Couldn't make it work in a traditional market in any reasonable time frame. Now, here's the key, though. Just because you leverage property doesn't mean that you always want that property to be leveraged. So I worked with a real estate investor here in West Palm Beach as a client of mine. This guy had $5 bucks uh, worth of property that was leveraged to the hilt. He's buying all kinds of t- you know, property all over the place, and he was as stressed as anybody. Because he never built up any margin and he never, he never eliminated his debt. So you can, as a young person, you can heavily leverage yourself. You can take advantage of the increasing returns that that gives you. And then you can slowly, slowly pay those properties off. And then you wind up in a short order with a, with a portfolio of paid off properties. Then, the, then you're fully insulated from, from either situation. I have seen one person, and this person is actually a family member, I have seen one person actually accomplish becoming a, an independent, uh, an independent, independent, I don't know, retiree, I guess. Not, not really. You're never retired if you own real estate because, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's partly a part-time business. But this person did it completely with cash. But what they did is they were operating in a smaller town in Florida where they were able to work at the lower part of the market. And they started in middle age, at their, in their middle age, and they didn't have much money, but they were able to scrape together about fifteen, twenty thousand dollars 20000 And through putting in a lot of sweat equity, they were able to buy some cheap properties, build them up, and now they have a, a very nice portfolio of properties, all of them paid for, and uh, all of them paid for, uh, and... 
you know, they're able to live just purely on their rents. But they didn't do the all-cash model on going out and buying $100,000 single-family houses. They dealt in a market where they could close quickly, and having all-cash and doing it themselves and working at the low end of the market and doing a couple of nice flips, doing some good rentals, they were able to make it work, and it worked out well for them, and they were able to maintain their independence and their safety and sleep well at night. But uh, you know, my summary is it's just not as simple as one or the other, and there are times at which – I think a wise investor will integrate the two strategies. And Absolutely. Go ahead. Um, the my it's funny you say the uh, the the easiest way is to to get a million dollars in debt and have tenants paid off because that was exactly my strategy a, a number of years ago. My goal was to retire once I hit a million in liabilities. Once I mm-hmm. hit a million in debt, um, then I would retire. And and of course I'd have. A, a very positive net worth at that point, and right. because because my equity would be quite large too. But but once I got a million in debt at at this low interest fixed long term debt, um, then then I was going to retire. And you know, just as strategies have to shift, um, that's not going to be the case. I own a number of properties now, free and clear, with no leverage. Right. Um, I have a number of properties that um, have appreciated quite a bit, and. Um, and have a, a substantial amount of equity. And I've looked at different scenarios of doing cash out refis on those or, or getting, getting mortgages on the ones that are free and clear, different things, and, and run the scenarios. And the numbers have to make sense, and, and they, they just don't. And so to, I think you have to evaluate every situation and decide um, what is the best, what's kind of the 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 best outcome if I, if I choose a, or if I choose B and, um, it's not just a blind, I, I want a mortgage just for the sake of having a mortgage. Cause, right. cause it's, it, it, it doesn't make sense when I run the numbers on, on some of my properties on other ones. Um, other ones I'm purchasing, I do want to get mortgages. So it, it very much is a situational thing. Absolutely. Right. And you've got to, you've got to have, I would I would be slow to encourage somebody to go out and say I'm going to go out and this year I'm going to borrow 10 properties I'm going to buy 10 properties never having owned rental real estate I'm going to go buy 10 properties I'm going to put mortgage on mortgage on all of them that seems like a bad plan to me might be <laughs> might be smart to take a little more time and buy one this year because with real estate everything that you do matters so like the thing is is that I've lived through and you've lived through watching I've watched several of my friends from from college go completely broke and bankrupt destroyed in the real estate uh, market here in Florida. And the thing is, is though, that they, they, had, they had the best of intentions, but they did not spend enough time learning. And they, they had a lot of big ideas, but they didn't spend enough time learning. And the key, I think, is go slow. You've got to get, you know, as the, as the slogan goes in real estate, you make your money when you buy. So just because you can mortgage a property doesn't mean that you should buy it. Uh, you got to get a deal on it. You got to get a property that's going to not be a ha- headache. You got to get a property that's going to work. Uh, and there are a bunch of different strategies to it. But uh, but it, it certainly, I think, because the terms of leverage on real estate can be so excellent, it is one of the just is one of the most. I think more people have been be- built independent lifestyles off of real estate than probably just about anything. And that's the whole point of early retirement is to be able to have an independent lifestyle, and it can be done faster. I think with real estate than probably many other strategies. Yeah, 
any, any resources that have been helpful to you that you'd like to recommend on, uh, on real estate? Um, well, there's, there's a number of different books. There's, there's a, a post on the MMM forums, um, uh, stickied in the real estate section with, with book recommendations. So, um, the one I always recommend to beginners, if someone's listening to this and is like, I'm, I don't, where, where can I start with just one book? Um, it's called building wealth, one house at a time. John Schaub's uh, book. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I would say the only thing I kind of disagree with in that book is his assumptions for appreciation. It was, it was written in 2004 and, and he has some, um, uh, assumptions that houses are going to appreciate at a certain rate. I forget what he says, 7% or something like that. And, and right. I, I wouldn't project any, any appreciation above inflation personally. Right. Um, but other than that, um, it's, it's a real solid book for beginners. It kind of lays out everything and even gives a plan for buying one house a year for 10 years and, and what to do with that and, and how to do that and how to find tenants. It's just, and it's, it's a pretty easy read. It's some, some books are just, you know, kind of overwhelming, but it's, it's more, it's kind of more simple for the beginner. And, uh, I, I like recommending that one to start out with, um, online, there's a website called biggerpockets.com and it's a, uh, a real estate, uh, forum and website. It has a blog, they have a podcast, um, and there's tons of, tons of great information on there. Um, I still tend to recommend books before I recommend that because, I think there's just some topics that are so broad when people post on a forum and they write, you know, a, a couple paragraphs, you can't get into a, a nuanced discussion of something that quickly. There's just not enough time to develop an idea that may take a chapter or, or three. And um, so while I think it's good to go read some blog posts and, and go on the forums to interact and ask questions and read read about people's scenarios and stuff to get kind of a more in-depth view, I still prefer, you know, going to books, go to your local library and they'll have a real estate section with, you know, a dozen plus books and, and flip through them and, and see what sounds interesting. And, and that's, I think where I would start and then move on to, to asking questions over at, you know, bigger pockets or at the real estate section of the MMM forums, or, you know, go to your local real estate meter meetup, go to meetup.com and, and search real estate in your area, things like that. I'll make sure to link to your uh, – I haven't seen over there your recommendations, but I'll make sure to link to them. And I've got a couple, though. On the topic of blogs, I 100% agree with you. I've got a show I'm going to do at some point. I'll probably just be one of those when I'm traveling or something, a six-minute show because basically I can tell the whole thing in the title. But the title of the show is going to be Why, Bo- Why Blog Posts Are Destroying Your Intelligence. And <laughs> there, you cannot convey concept, some concepts in a 1,000-word blog post. There's a reason why we get knowledge from books, and I actually have made it over the past years. I've made the decision to spend far – if I go and someone has a great blog, I'll often read somebody's archives. But if they've got a book, I need to read the book first because there is a massive difference between producing a coherent book that is all-inclusive of the subject covered versus the ability to just produce a few articles. And I'm really concerned about <laughs> – well, the things we think we're knowledgeable in if we're not willing to read a book. Um, but a couple of recommendations. Uh, I read a book a few a couple of years ago uh, called Landlording. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but written by yeah, a guy, Le- I think it's Le- Lee, Ro- Re- Le- Le- Robinson. Robinson. Right, 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 right. That, I think, is I, – I read it and I was like, this is the best 
<laughs> this would be the is the first uh, resource that anybody who owns a property should be spending time in it. And don't buy a property until you've read that book. It's almost like the comprehensive guide to managing a property. That's, that's one of those tomes I was reading. That's kind of a bigger one that I, for someone new to real estate, right, right. I say that's something you definitely want to get before you buy rental real estate, but it's, it, it goes through more the the nuts and bolts and is great to have as a resource when you're like, oh man, tenants are moving in. What do I need to do? And you flip right. to that and you find, oh, here's a pre-move-in inspection form. And, and, you know, it's great to have all those resources of tenant, you know, to look up and use it almost like an encyclopedia of landlording. Um, but for someone looking to get an overview of like, how do I even find what a good property is? I, right. I agree. But, but that is a great resource for anyone wanting to be a landlord. Yeah. Right. I should have clarified that. I think of all the books I've read, I think Building Wealth One House at a Time is probably the best starting point. Are you familiar with any of John T. Reed's books uh, or his works on real estate? Um, no, I've, he's kind of a famous infamous around real estate circles because of his, you know, skewering of the, the various guru ratings. Real Right. Um, but I, I've not, so since his books aren't available on Amazon or in any public libraries, he, he kind of self publishes and sells them directly from his websites from what I understand. Right. And so I've, I've never, um, had the opportunity to read any of his stuff. Um, is there one in particular you recommend? I'm going to, I was going to send people to the guru ratings. And so I actually started, I made major mistakes when I was young and I started with the gurus and I got sucked into the real estate seminar world and I wanted so desperately in 2000 and would have been 2006, I wanted so desperately to put 15,000 bucks on my credit card to, uh, to borrow when I was in college to uh, to pay the entrance fee to a uh, who was it uh, guy in Orlando total shyster but um, I don't remember the guy's name uh, but he was doing these these uh, real estate seminars and I wanted desperately to put the fifteen thousand bucks down for the private mentoring program to build my wealth and real estate on my credit card and thankfully my dad just flat out put his foot down and wouldn't allow me to to do it I still could have gone past him but thankfully I listened to him and I avoided um, making some major mistakes but the gurus that you can find in real estate there are so many hucksters and just shysters I would encourage people to go and read um, reads guru ratings and the thing I like that I appreciate about him is that he's very fair and at least my my observation is that he's very fair and he is not uh he I'll leave it at that he's very fair yeah. um, but as far as the books you're right he does he self publishes and he only sells through his website and his books are expensive about 30 to 40 bucks but I own two of his on real estate and I plan to buy and read more but my rule is I can only buy more books when I'm ready to read them uh, I've, I've bought a couple of his, of his other books as well I have found them all to be worth the money and very very pithy and he also has a newsletter that I think is, a, is very, very pithy. When you look at the articles and the topics that he writes on, uh, I don't know of somebody writing who has more experience, who's more prolific with specific actionable steps. So what I find is when I read his books that – I mean almost every – Every paragraph winds up being highlighted and underlined in some manner with notes. They're just extremely pithy. So he's got one called How to Get Started in Real Estate. And I think it's the most practical guide that I've ever found to how to actually implement it. So if you read Building Wealth One House at a Time and get excited and want to go on, then uh, you know 
That's I would say, I would say start with how to get started in real estate, and he gives you action steps. Here are your action steps, and then you can go on and you can read uh, other books to pick your strategies, things like that. Gotcha. Good. Good to know. Um, one thing I would add also about about John T. Reed, spelled R E E D, if anyone's googling him, mm-hmm. um, is he's got he's I think he's most kind of famous, infamous for his skewering of Robert Kiyosaki and, right. and Rich Dad Poor Dad, and I, I do recommend um, a lot of people come to real estate through Rich Dad, Poor Dad. They, they read that and they get all excited about the idea of, of right. having an independent income. And um, that's great. I, I do recommend anyone who reads Rich Dad, Poor Dad also read John Reed's comments on it mm-hmm. and take it with a grain of salt. I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, I think... But I think it's good to have a balance of opinions to to kind of hear arguments on both sides, and so I think it's worth reading both Rich Dad Poor Dad and reading um, and reading John Reed's opinion of it and, and some of the stuff he calls out as as bad advice right. in, in that book. It was actually that his his article was very helpful to me because I was a big fan of Rich Dad Poor Dad, and I just didn't know what I didn't know. And one of my professors in college suggested, he said, are you familiar with Reed's write-up on him? And, uh, oh, Russ Whitney, that was the guy that I got sucked into. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll leave that alone. Uh, and I went and read it, and I said, wow, Joshua, you need to learn a little bit more because I appreciated how, what, how he talked about it. I think, and here's the problem. Oftentimes, I don't know if you face this, but I struggle sometimes between this motivational aspect of things versus the actually how to, how to implement it because Kiyosaki was a master he wrote a book that was just a motivational master and it's hard to find someone whose life hadn't you know who many people's lives were impacted by that and yet that doesn't mean that that's the place to start from it just means he was great at motivation so it's very tough to ferret out uh truth I just say learn from them all and recognize you know first thing I try to do when I find a topic I'm interested in read a book then I try to go and find the anti-book <laughs> and kind of you know the thing that was written against that and then try to compare them and just keep learning our way through it yeah it's a good way to do it anything else on real estate versus index funds um You know, I, I would say, I guess in the end, it's going to come down to, to personality type. I, in terms of that, um, what we were just talking about, actually, of, of find one opinion and then find the opposite, um, and the truth is, is maybe somewhere in the middle. Not necessarily, because that's, that's kind of a fallacy, but, but at least you can, should consider both sides of it. Um, don't. I would encourage people don't immediately get scared away from real estate just based on rumors, based on what you hear, based on people saying, you know, oh, you don't want to get a call, phone call from a tenant at three in the morning. Right. I've never had that happen. I, right. you know, I've, I guess I've only been in real estate a, a limited seven years now. So, so it's not that long compared to a lot of people, but I've never had that happen. I know other real estate investors who have told me they've never had that happen. Um, so you hear these rumors and, um, and you kind of get scared away and, or, or I'll see people post on the MMM forums and, and they'll say stuff like, well, I, you know, I don't want to, to have real estate cause I'm not very handy. And, and I say, I'm not either. Like, I, I don't know where to plug in a hammer. 
I, I, I don't know anything about how to, how to fix anything. I, so they're worried about like, I, I have to, you know, go over and fix the plumbing when the, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't do any work on my property. Even the local ones that I manage, I, you know, I call a plumber, I call an electrician. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting out the middleman of the property manager because I found that for that, you know, 12 hours or so a year, I mentioned earlier, it pays a rate of about a hundred bucks an hour to deal with that minor stuff of, of calling a plumber when the, being the middleman instead of a property manager, tenant contacts me, I contact a, a, a handyman to take care of stuff. Right. Um, and, but I, I don't do any of that work. So, so I think I would, I guess I would just encourage people who are scared of it for whatever particular find out if that fear is rational. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, because if they're like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to have real estate because I don't want to deal with tenants. Well, then find out, is that a rational fear? And go on a real estate forum, go on the MMM forums, go on bigger pockets and ask people like, I don't want to deal with tenants. Is there a way I can invest in real estate? And, and the answer is yes, absolutely. You can get a property manager to deal with the tenants for you. You can invest in other types of real estate besides owning rental properties. You can own notes. You can be the bank and own the mortgage on real estate. You can do flip. I mean, there's a number of different ways that you can invest in real estate that doesn't just directly mean being a landlord. And so if you are, if you're interested in real estate, I would say don't just get scared off by what you think or what you've heard, but educate yourself a little bit first and, and find out, is that a rational fear? And, and you may end up with a, well, it's maybe not as bad as I thought, but it's still just not something I want to deal with. And, and that's perfectly fine. I think for a lot of people, um, the choice uh, to, to keep it simple and, and it, figure out their asset allocation and, and just go with that and not deal with all that other real estate stuff um, is, is a great choice. Um, it does take more, more work. Um, for me, the benefits are well worth it because, like I said, I'm going to be able to retire at age 30 um, from, from two teacher salaries, you know, d- having done all of it ourselves, just from saving and investing and, and learning. And, um, it's, it, it, it really, I think is one of the quickest accelerants to becoming early retired. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the only way or even the best way. And so, um, but the only way to find that out is, is really to educate yourself and start learning. Right. I, I, I think that's valuable advice and I want to add just a couple comments to it. And then, um, Joe, we're going to have to wrap up for today cause we got through one question, but we're at an, an hour five and maybe you'll consider coming back. I thought we were going to get through about six of these questions, but no chance. But I think, I think what we've, what we, what we're providing here has, uh, uh, is valuable. We'll, we'll work that out here in just a moment though. Um, I think real estate, there can be many factors why it can be perfect, and there can be many factors why it's not, and they're very individualized. My father and mother bought a, bought an investment condo, and they, in here in West Palm Beach, this was some years ago, it was all around the worst financial decision they've ever made in their life. And they bought at the wrong time. They were, they were poor property managers, and not because they're stupid people, but they very much were pushovers and they yeah. and they didn't learn enough about uh learning they didn't learn enough about their tenants and you know my dad to this day says it was one of the worst mistakes that he ever made and 
one of the things that I knew going in, and I should have picked up on it, I didn't, and we learned a lot going through it as a family, but he said, I don't want to be a landlord. If you don't want to be a landlord, don't go into into rental real estate. And there can be more reasons not to want to be a landlord than just simply you know, fixing things. And I think your comments are valid about not necessarily having to fix things. Uh, but with real estate, I think the key thing to acknowledge is that real estate is part investment, part part-time job. And you're never going to get a call because you bought a couple shares of. Uh, you're never going to get a call from Vanguard because you own some of you know of their index fund saying, "Hey, listen, can you you need to you need to go find a new a new owner for this? You can just own it for as long as you want. There's a market you can dump it at any time, and you never have to worry about you know how do I sell this massive asset, this fifty thousand dollar property? If you want to sell two thousand bucks of your stock, you go ahead. So I don't think it's either or. Uh, but there are some really powerful advantages to real estate for the right person, for the right temperament. And if I sincerely believe one of the major flaws that I is a big deal to me, one of the major flaws with the 4% rule is that that 4% rule is calculated based upon index returns. It's not calculated based upon investor returns. And there is a broad body of research which illustrates that the average investor underperforms their own investments by greater than 50%. And there are many people who I think cannot handle the risk of being in the stock market. If you're concerned about the risk of being in the stock market, don't be in the stock market. Get out. And I think there's many people who would be far better off. And again, there's people in my own family who are in this situation that are far better off just from their own peace of mind with the ability to drive past the five rental houses that they own and know as long as I keep my five tenants in there and they each pay me a thousand bucks a month, I got five thousand bucks of income. And I think that we don't spend enough time talking about investment temperament, excuse me, investor temperament. And I think we need to find a you know a place for that in our discussions. And then we also need to look at what our actual skills are. So if I'm a if I'm a high powered CEO and I'm making three four hundred thousand dollars a year, unless I really want to do it, it's probably most in my best interest to focus on that and not to get distracted on Saturday morning trying to figure out who what plumber am I going to call uh, to do this. Uh, and so, like, you got to focus. Do I am I the kind of person who has a great earning potential on my job? Well. Probably you would agree that being a teacher is usually not where you go when you're focusing on earning potential. So it sounds like a perfect strategy for somebody like you who has a stable stable earning ability, the ability to live on less, the ability to accumulate a down payment and to get started and then to leverage your way into it. And you have the time. I'm sure your school schedule gives you the time that you need in the afternoon and, and, after, and weekend to, to work at it. So I think we just need to have it very individualized and look at our actual situation. Uh, I, I, I completely agree. Um, the only fear I have around that is uh, not fear, but kind of worry or reservation, I guess, is if we are trying to figure out a safe withdrawal rate based on an investor, um, you have the Dunning Kruger effect where, where I think investors are going to think they're, they're going to do better than the market. What's the Dunning Kruger effect? Uh, I'm not familiar um, with that term. It's it's the idea that everyone overestimates their ability, uh, their own abilities. You know how ninety um, percent of drivers right. think they're better than average. Right. 
Um, and, and the less you know about a subject, the more likely you are to overestimate your ability. So, so experts in a, in a field are more likely to acknowledge they don't know everything and, and then someone who just like, oh, no, I understand that. Right. You know, so if you think about sort of amateur investors, um, I, I think there's a lot of them who would think, oh, yeah, I can beat the market, no problem. And so if, if, if we're coming from a place of let's look at individual investors and, and their expected return, uh, people, I think, I think 90% of investors would think they're better than average. And, um, and that can lead to them maybe choosing a safe withdrawal rate or thinking they're going to, you know, do better than, than they actually might in, in the real world specifically. Um, and what's been shown. And like you mentioned, those studies where, most investors underperform their investments due to their tendency to to um, buy high and sell low, and um, so it's it's hard. Uh, you'd have to have a very unbiased um, opinion, a very objective, you know, maybe third party opinion, looking at and and giving you some realistic um, assumptions and projections on what you might be able to expect. I, I like the idea. I think it's it might be difficult to implement. Right. Right. It, valid point. Uh, what I was emphasizing was that many the people who are not who don't have the temperament for the stock market should simply recognize that and get out and go yes. focus on something that they do have the temperament for. Yes. And uh, I think you'll find that a lot in real estate. You'll find people who recognize I I can't handle it. Uh, I, I cannot handle it, but I can handle the the real estate. Now, on the other hand, you're going to have people like me. I I am incredibly uncomfortable <laughs> with real estate uh, just simply because it's all based upon supply and demand and a local and it's such massive amounts i'm far more comfortable me personally just for me with with stock investing uh, because that's what i know that's what i'm skilled at uh, but they 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 each have different uh, different um different points uh but a good, good a good a good point one last thing and then i'll give you an opportunity to share anything else that you'd like to share um one key it, Reed's book, How to Get Started on Real Estate, is worth the price, uh, whatever it is, 30, 30, 40 bucks, is worth the price exclusively for the list that he posts in it on real estate strategies, specific, unique real estate strategies. He has, it's about a page and a half list. I'm going from memory here. I would recommend about 100, I would, excuse me, I would, uh, uh, Estimate. Estimate. Thank you. <laughs> I would guess. <laughs> Probably a, it, from recollection here, about 100 different uh, strategies that he posts. And the cool thing about it is it shows how, you know, bu again, buying single family houses is not the and, and owning them for rent is not the only strategy. That's Schaub's strategy, and it's a great one. But there are many ways to get involved with real estate if you are interested in a specific market uh, that don't involve tenants. There And there are a variety of ways to do it. So uh, I, I found that so valuable. And he's written some books on some of those topics, and he points out some other places to go to learn more. Uh, and most you know, people are familiar with tax liens or people are familiar with uh, you know, flipping. Uh, but there are many, many strategies more that he outlines, and I found that really helpful. So anything cool. else, Joe, on this topic? Um. I, I, I'm sure we're missing something. I feel like there's something at the back of my brain going like, "Oh, but you, you forgot something," you know that that kind of itching feeling. Um, it's it's just such a broad topic that uh, you know I, I I feel like we've covered it pretty well. The the main thing is is 
start learning, start, um, you know, go download the bigger pockets podcast. And, um, one, oh, one thing I would caution people though, is because of, of like things like that list you just mentioned that has a hundred different strategies. There are, there's, there's a million ways to invest in real estate. And, um, a lot of people new to it get overwhelmed with that or, they're, they they hear about this new strategy and they want to try that out and then they hear this other new one and, and it's kind of referred to as right. the shiny object syndrome. They're just constantly chasing this next shiny object and and I would I would suggest pick one and and focus on that and learn everything you can about that because uh, you know if you do go listen to the Bigger Pockets podcast they've got like eighty interviews with with eighty different real estate investors probably doing you know seventy nine different things between them and. Um, and it's it's easy to to get a little lost and and constantly be end up just kind of chasing your own tail. Um, but the the first step is to just start learning about what is out there um, right. and and seeing if it if it is a viable option for you. Because because certainly, like you were saying, for some personality types stock market investing may not be the way to go because they can't handle the swings. And, and when the market takes a dive, they want to sell. Uh, but the other way around too, real estate may not be right for some people like, like your parents, you know, if it, it's, you don't want to be a landlord if you're a pushover and you, you have to treat it like a business. Right. And, and, and so it's, it, it does require learning about yourself and learning about um, the different options. And then before you can decide which, which investment is, is going to be right for me. And maybe that's dividend stocks or, or maybe that's the permanent portfolio or maybe that's rental real estate or, you know, right. one of a million other options. Or a McDonald's franchise or sure. <laughs> building and selling websites or becoming a welder or, or just about <laughs> anything that we want to talk about. Absolutely. Let's do this. I really did think we were going to get through more of these. Would you be willing to come back on uh, in a future show? And, and so not the rest of our list is not this in depth as far as how we took this one but would you be willing to come back in the future and uh, tackle some more of these yeah yeah absolutely and then maybe uh what we could do is uh we'll invite uh since uh, since i am specifically thinking of like the early retirement community and the mustachians let's invite them uh, anybody who has wants to add to our list or has specific questions uh we can do that but i think this would be fun for them to get a chance to hear you i've I've enjoyed seeing you over there on the forum and i think it'll be fun to to hear this conversation it'll be a valuable resource for them so uh thank you for coming on we'll we'll coordinate another time to kind of come back and uh and and talk through a couple more of these topics in the future but thank you so much for coming on tonight no problem it was my pleasure it was nice talking to you my hope is that that provides you with at least a starting place i know we didn't answer every question there's no way to answer every question but i hope maybe we can pique your interest and 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 give you just a general idea of some of the issues involved in, in choosing an investment strategy it's kind of funny i got an email from joe after the fact and he said <laughs> i just keep thinking of all the things i forgot to say and that's always how these these shows go which is why they build and frankly in years of studying investing you always just learn a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Uh, there is no comprehensive curriculum on any of these things. But I hope today you have some of the information that you need to come back with a more balanced perspective. Uh, I think that uh, that's the key. And, and, and for you to decide what's right for you. So I trust you enjoyed the interview. 
Tomorrow, uh, I'll be coming back with another show continuing. I think we're going to continue the college series, so check back in tomorrow. Uh, the first show was yesterday on how to pay for college, uh, for your kid's college, and, and uh, show one was teach your babies to read. Uh, and tomorrow, we're going to be talking about education prior to college and some of the radical and interesting and innovative ideas and how they can make a major influence on your financial plan. So I hope you enjoy that. Then we'll do, be doing a show after that uh, talking about some of the alternatives to mainstream college and also the alternatives to the mainstream ways of paying for it. And then we will pick aside the detailed aspects of college planning. We're going to pick apart all the rules of all the accounts that most people know about, the uh, educational savings accounts, the 529s, all of the grants and the credits. We'll pick all those detailed rules apart so you're aware of them. Uh, then I'm actually going to talk you through some of the more tricky ways that you can pay for college without having any of those college accounts, but just by simply using a few legal tricks, so to speak. So hopefully you'll find that, that content and information uh, useful. Thanks so much for being here. Don't forget to subscribe, and I would love it. Keep leaving me the reviews on Stitcher. That's awesome. And on iTunes, that's great. Uh, and if you have another place that you prefer to listen to content like this, let me know where that's from and um, leave a review there. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to today's show. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. Your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. This show is not and is not intended to be any form of financial advice. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. Hold them accountable for your results. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please come by the show page and comment so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.